A reading from Second Chronicles. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified, rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful morning, this time together. We give you thanks for your word and for your spirit, and we pray that you would meet us right now that you would attend to us right where we are, and uh, that you would unstop our ears and open our eyes, that we may behold the glory of Christ this morning. And we're acknowledging as we come to the end of the summer and as we get ready for the fall, uh, perhaps many in the room are just coming to the city for the first time, or we're coming back from summer vacations, or preparing to start school, or perhaps a new job, and some of us have experienced excitement in recent weeks, others uh, great sorrow uh, and dread, and so we acknowledge that we're coming from all kinds of different places and situations this week, and we give those to you, and we ask that you would uh, speak to us enliven us, strengthen us, and encourage us uh, for what lies ahead, and that you would reveal yourself to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're wrapping up our summer series on the parables of Jesus. And when we began the series back in June, Jonathan kicked us off and introduced this really interesting, kind of provocative idea that parables are like the murals of the Bible, these familiar fixtures 
of the biblical landscape that we pass by time and again, often becoming uh, very familiar with them, so familiar that they may even blend in to the background of the biblical story and we stop noticing them. Yet every now and then as we pass by again and we actually stop to look, inevitably something new will stand out. Maybe it's something new that we didn't notice before about the actual text or maybe it's something about ourselves that we didn't notice before until this parable brought it to light. Or maybe it's something even about the character of God, what God is like, uh, that, we, that we only glimpse as we peer through the window of a particular story that Jesus tells where we get to see something specific about who God is, the beauty and glory and love that God reveals in Jesus. The parables have aged well. I mean, there's stories that Jesus told um, and that these gospel writers have recorded for us uh, and passed down to us, and they've remained relevant after all these years, after 2,000 years. They're relevant for us here and now as they were back then and half a world away. And this parable that we're considering together today, this one of the Pharisee and tax collector or Pharisee and the publican, as it is often called, is just another great example of this. If you have been around the church for much of your life or if you've been reading the Bible for any number of years, this parable is undoubtedly a familiar one to you. It's one of those landmarks that dots the landscape of the biblical stories and you've, you've driven by it many times, right? You know this one. It's like on, on Jesus' discography, this is like on Greatest Hits Volume 2, you know, track four, right? It's a, it's a familiar one. It, it's, it gets in the playlist, and it's the one about the self-righteous religious guy and the unrighteous tax collector, right? Two sinners, very unalike in dignity, who relate to God and to their own sinfulness very differently. And Jesus commends not the humble, bragging, keep-your-nose-clean religious guy who can point to all these ways that he's been a good person, but he commends the flagrant sinner who knows he's hopeless and simply says, Lord, have mercy. Now, if you're a newcomer to the Bible, if you haven't been around the Christian community much of your life and this is one of your first times driving by this one and beholding it, maybe it does jump right out at you right away like one of the great murals of our city that if you're a tourist walking around, you see for the first time. And if that's what's happening, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, don't let me get in your way as you view the beauty of God through that window. But for many of us who passed by this one so many times, uh, we might need a little extra help. We might need a little more intentionality to stop and look once again that we might just glimpse something new, or that we might just be reminded once again of something we used to find beautiful, we used to find powerful and striking, but has since kind of receded into the background of our lives. So let's do that now, if you will. Let's look at this parable and just turn our attention very intentionally to the words on the page. Look at verse 9. You know, Luke introduces this parable by telling us that Jesus told it to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. 
And I think it's important to notice that Jesus presents these two problems here, or sorry, Luke is presenting these two problems here, of self-trusting self-righteousness on one hand, and then contempt for other people on the other hand. He's presenting them as intertwined. That the pride and the contempt travel together, right? That's important. Where you find one, you find the other. And Luke sets this parable up by telling us who needed to hear it then and who needs to hear it now. It's those for whom this two-headed problem is a problem. The pride-contempt problem. And so who is that? Well, in the story, Jesus uses a hypocritical religious person as his example, right? And, um, and, but that doesn't mean that self-trusting, self-righteousness, and contempt for others are necessarily religious problems. I mean, I think we see them everywhere. These are human problems, right? And we see them crop up in religious-flavored ways, but we also see them crop up in all kinds of other ways. Because regardless of whatever your perspective is on you know, what your religious beliefs may be, for example, you and I and everyone else have some notion of righteousness, right? Some notion uh, of what it means to be in the right, to be part of the solution and not the problem. Though we may not ever use that word righteousness to describe it, we're, we're all talking about the same kind of thing, right? What it means to be in the right. And that could be, you know, wherever you find your, your righteousness, right? It could be in your religiosity or in your political views or your activism or your taste in music or how woke you are or how zealous you are about composting and recycling or whatever. We, we work in a co-working space where there's some composting righteousness and I live with fear of judgment by my neighbors. I'm underdeveloped in that skill, um, though I try, but... Um, we all have our things, right? We all have our things that we've identified as good and right. And we all have those things that we identify as good and right that also make us proud, and we have our ways of congratulating ourselves about being in the right on those things. And we all know what it's like to look down on other people who are not in the right on those things. And we all know what it's like to be looked down upon for not being in the right in someone else's eyes, right? We are all participant observers to some degree in this culture of moral outrage and polarization in which contempt for others seems to have reached a kind of fever pitch and it seems like it's just stuck there indefinitely, right? You know what I'm talking about? You feel that at all? I mean, at, and so right off the bat, the way Luke introduces this parable, he sets it up in a way that basically says to me as I'm reading this, it's like, this is so relevant for us today. This has everything to do with the way we live in the world today. So just think with me for a minute. What's your thing? What's righteousness to you? What are those things that are important to you that make you proud of yourself and that make it really difficult for you to love other people whose beliefs or actions are different from your own? Because whatever your answer or answers are to that question, and whatever my answer 
and answers are to that question. No matter how good and important those things may be. Those are the things I think that Jesus is exposing in this parable as potentially disastrous for our own lives and for those around us when we prioritize them over loving our neighbor. That's what the parable is about. And to make this point, Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, both of whom have come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to pray, presumably at the time of either the morning or the evening sacrifice. And now to Jesus' hearers, it would have been so obvious even as Jesus begins the parable, just who's supposed to be the good guy and who's supposed to be the bad guy in the story because Pharisees were some of the most respected people in the community. And tax collectors were among the most hated. And Jewish tax collectors, like the ones who would show up at the temple, were the most hated because they were traitors. They worked in collusion with the enemy power, Rome, to exploit their own people, and they got rich by doing it. That's who they were. They were villains. And so to, to contextualize this for us, in the place of the Pharisee, think of someone like, like a well-respected nun who runs a soup kitchen. And in place of the tax collector, think of like Bernie Madoff or somebody like that, someone who's gotten rich off of taking advantage of other people in criminal sorts of ways. Jesus tells a story about these two characters. And the Pharisee, this very religious person who takes his faith seriously and lives this morally scrupulous life, he comes and he prays to God and he gives an account of his life of faithfulness. And what he's doing there is he's probably just seeing himself as doing what a good law-abiding Jewish man would do. He's following the instructions of Torah. Uh, in Deuteronomy 26, there are instructions about how you come to the temple and what you're supposed to do. You come and you bring your tithe, a tenth of your income, and you make an account of your faithfulness. And so this is what this guy is doing, sort of. It's probably what he thinks he's doing. That's what he's doing in his mind. But he goes a step further. He goes sort of Torah plus. Because as he starts talking about his life, and he's giving his account, he actually talks about how he's gone beyond the requirements of the law. This guy is like a religious superstar, and some commentators note that the language in verse 12, where he talks about his tithe, it suggests that he doesn't just give a tithe of his income, like the Torah requires, but, he's, but he, the, the phrase he's using suggests that he's giving 10% of all that he acquires, like the stuff that he gets by, by gift, or by purchasing, or things like that, which is more than what the law required. And then with respect to the fasting, he says he fasts twice a week. Well, the law required fasting one day a year on the Day of Atonement, but this guy is an overachiever. He, he does it twice a week. He's into it, right? This guy's like the dream church member. He volunteers at everything faithfully. He shows up. He's always participating. Community group leader, he gives generously of his time and of his money and of his talents to support the work of the church. Like, this is who you want on the team and who you need if you're going to do anything meaningful or robust or substantive in the place that God calls you to serve, right? This is good stuff. He's a model 
of what faithfulness looks like. Except for one all-important problem. He's proud. And his pride in himself has begotten contempt for others who don't do all the good things that he does. And when he prays, it's not a prayer of love for God and neighbor, but it's the prayer version of the humble brag. I thank you, God. All credit to you, God. Definitely giving you all the credit, God. Thank you that I'm so much better than all these sinners and that I haven't made a wreck of my life. But for the grace of God, there go I. So thank you, God, that I didn't go there and that I've gone a much better way and I'm part of the solution and not part of the problem like all these people and like this guy, namely this tax collector. But the tax collector, the villain, prays differently. Standing far off, he doesn't even look up because of his shame and because he knows he's a lost cause. And his prayer is a desperate plea for mercy because he knows that he has no leg to stand on. Under Torah, any money that's gained by extortion would have had to be paid back plus 20%. Paid back in full, plus 20%. There's absolutely no way this guy can make right all that he's done wrong to his neighbors. There's no way, no possible way. So all he can do is ask for mercy. And so he owns this label of sinner, not just in an abstract sense, but in a very concrete and real and personal sense. He's not just talking about sin like up there in the ether, but he knows his sins and he's coming with a real sense of the harm that he's done. And because he has no case and no defense, he simply pleads guilty and he casts himself upon the mercy of God. And Jesus says that this guy, the villain who pleads guilty, is the one who goes home justified, acquitted. That's shocking. Right? I mean, that's scandalous, even. I mean, we don't want the Bernie Madoffs of the story, the you fill in the blank whoever's of the story to receive mercy like that. We don't want that. That doesn't even seem fair. It also doesn't seem, un it doesn't seem fair that the seemingly more deserving, hardworking, faithful religious person wouldn't be just given a little bit more credit for all the good work and that he's done, all the good deeds, this outward lifestyle of doing the right thing all the time. But I think what we're supposed to see through this window that Jesus opens for us in this parable is the extent to which this story is offensive to us is probably the extent to which we are self-trusting, self-righteous people who regard others with contempt and therefore need the story. And that's why we need to stop here and not just drive by this one again, but to stop and look and see what it is that Jesus wants us to see about God.
and about ourselves. Because the mercy of God is no less available to this Pharisee than it is to the tax collector. It's just less desired and less received, right? And what God wants from us isn't fundamentally a strong resume of faithfulness. What God wants from you is you. He wants you. He wants me. And ultimately, the only righteousness that counts is love. And the good news for the Pharisee and the good news for the tax collector and the good news for every one of us is that that is actually true of God as well. His righteousness is love. And the lavishness of his love and the, is, and the glory of that righteousness is exactly what God reveals to us in Jesus. Which is why the righteous God can grant mercy to the villain who casts himself upon the compassion of the Lord. See, the Pharisee's problem is that he thinks he can keep the commands of the Torah, the commands of the law, without keeping the love command. But he's wrong. Because love is and always has been the heart and soul and end goal of God's law. And what we see is that humility is necessary for that love to happen. Because our tendency toward pride and self-exaltation is and always has been the great enemy of love. Because it hijacks our affections and our aspirations away from God and our neighbor and directs them back toward ourselves. As Tuck mentioned at the confession of sin time, what we need is to decenter ourselves, to be decentered, right? Pride, selfishness, it puts us back at the center. It directs our love, our loyalty, and our efforts toward ourselves rather than toward God and neighbor. Brene Brown has something kind of interesting to say about pride and perfectionism in her book, uh, The Gifts of Imperfection. And she says that perfectionism is, at its core, about trying to earn approval and acceptance. And she goes on to discuss how pride is actually a symptom, not the cause of perfectionism. Rather, she says, the root of perfectionism is shame and a deep sense of insecurity. And she says that our human imperfections, our flaws and our limits and our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, these are actually gifts that reveal to us the impossibility of our futile endeavors. And they become doorways for us by which we may enter this process of healing and this experience of freedom from the crippling effects of shame and insecurity that inhibit love. Why do we endlessly try to tweak our lives in the name of self-improvement? Why do we get so caught up in our games of self-promotion and self-actualization? And why do we invest so much energy and so much worry in our strategies for self-protection? Because we live not out of a deep experience of God's love. Not out of an experience of security in his fatherly embrace. Not out of an experience of rest that is ours when we recline into the arms of our creator and sustainer and redeemer in whom we live and move and have our being. We don't live out of that. Rather, we live as if God were distant and detached. 
leaving us on our own to carve out for ourselves whatever life we can fashion with our own limited resources and skill, and we, and we don't want to mess that up. And so we live as fundamentally insecure in the world, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with one another, in just the way we think about our future. We live as though we were fundamentally insecure in the world. And so when we're insecure, what is an imperfection? It's a threat. It's a liability. An imperfection is the hole in your armor that you rely on for self-protection, right? Or an imperfection is a black mark on the resume that we rely on for self-promotion. Or an imperfection is an obstacle that blocks the way on our journey of self-improvement. But that's not how Jesus sees it, is it? Listen to the parable. Listen to Jesus. What does he say? And how are the words of Jesus so different from that critical little voice that's inside your head? Jesus says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the cross that unfolds into and then through the empty tomb. And this is the way of life that lasts. Not the self-exalting, self-promoting, self-protecting, self-actualizing, self-congratulating way where we're just climbing the ladder of life to the best of our ability. And it's not that survival of the fittest way in which we're competitors against one another in some dog-eat-dog, zero-sum game of life. That's not it. But rather, the way that Jesus shows us is a way of humility and love whose trailhead and destination both are the security and love of the God who embraces you and holds you and holds your life story and holds you to himself by the very power of heaven that has made the world, that raises the dead and will make all things new. That is the life and the love that God offers in Christ and it can only be received as a gift. You can't earn it with accomplishments and you can't ruin it Nothing that you've done and nothing that you have suffered has put you out of reach of the mercy of that God. And nothing that you've done that's good and nothing that you've accomplished has put you in a place where you don't need that mercy. It's true for you. It's also true for your neighbor. As some often say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that reality Jesus shows us here should lead us in a way of relating to God and one another very humbly and to love one another as God has loved us in Christ. Thomas Merton says that people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. And I think what Jesus shows us in this parable is that there is no ladder to climb because God comes down to us, right? 
And what happens in this story is both the Pharisee and the tax collector have spent their lives climbing their own respective ladders and doing their thing. And the key difference between the two is that one of them has awakened to the futility and the ridiculousness of that project and is now asking for God's mercy. He's casting himself and his cares upon God who cares for him, the God who resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And why is it that the tax collector has gotten to that place? Because of the gift of his imperfection. That's what Brene Brown would call it. St. Augustine would call it that happy fault, right? He's made right by the mercy of God. What would it look like for you in the coming week and in this fall to begin to own that confession, that label of sinner more personally, more concretely and specifically, and to own that prayer more sincerely, Lord, have mercy on me. And what would it look like to let that prayer guide you into this place of humility that begets love and a place of love that begets humility? And what would it look like in your life if all of the pride and contempt began to just dissipate as humility and love began to radiate through your being and through your relationships? The beautiful news that we read about and learn about through these parables is that God is up to something grand in the world. He's making all things new, and he's bringing his kingdom of peace and justice to bear upon the earth. He's not, he's not simply here about your agenda or my agenda. That's not it at all. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what he's doing in the earth. And the staggering, jaw-droppingly beautiful, gracious, and glorious thing that Jesus tells to us is that he has chosen to include you in it. Not because you qualify, but because you are loved. What would it look like to believe that? To trust God who loves you like that? And then to humbly receive it and share that with the world. That's our calling. May God give us grace to do it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the love that you show us in Christ. We thank you for the power of the good news that you are a God of mercy who looks upon us in all of our imperfections and our limits and our failures and our flaws and our traumas and our tragedies, all the things that we've done, all the things we've suffered, all the things that are good and beautiful about our lives and all the things that are broken. You look upon our hearts and our stories and you love us and you grant us mercy. Would you give us humility? Would you give us grace to love you back? to entrust ourselves to you and to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. We ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name, amen.